Well, good evening. Uh, it's good to uh, be back with you again this evening. And uh, it's a real joy and privilege to be op- able to open up God's Word with you this evening as well. Uh, we're going to be uh, reading and considering uh, the passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, it's on page 1175 if you're using one of the church Bibles. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to be thinking about uh, and considering together verses 1 through 16. So we're going to read those together now before we come to consider those words together. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ." Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together, by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We're going to be considering all those verses uh, together. Uh, And and just by way of introduction, I wanted to um, just share with you a a video that I watched uh, recently. And it was kind of uh, aimed at, it was kind of a humorous video, but in a sense, it had a serious element to it to highlight some of the attitudes that we can have towards church as we gather on a Sunday, as we belong to the local church. And it began with some of these statements. It was obviously done in a very dramatic and interesting way, but it said things like this. Imagine a church where every member is wholeheartedly calling the shots. You know, I want church to start when it's convenient for me because I have a very busy week. I want my children to have somewhere to be during the service so that when they scream and cry, 
people don't look at me as if I'm the enemy. I want a decent coffee at the end or even at the beginning. I want the music and the singing to be the way that I feel most comfortable. They were some of the comments amongst many others. And this video ends at the end of all of that, um, that kind of dialogue. It ends by saying, here at this church, we take care of all those things. And it asks the question, what's the name of this church? Well, the church is called Me Church, where it's all about you. So I want to begin with that kind of setting and ask the question, what is our attitude to church? Now, as I ask that question, you might have various things. And and some of those things that I've just mentioned might be good things. What are your relationships within the church like? Those relationships with one another. Now, again, you might have things that you think about and things that come to mind as I ask that question. And maybe you think your relationships with one another, they're pretty good. I get on with most people. And whilst that might be true... It's often not when things are going well that we really understand what our relationships are like with one another, is it? It's often at those times when there are difficult times, when there are disagreements, when there are things that don't go quite the way that we hoped. Then perhaps we can really ask and answer that question. So the passage we're going to be spending our time in, as I've just said, is Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Um, if you have your Bible, please keep it open. I, I don't just want to be revealing these things uh, to you. I want you to be following with me uh, and seeing these things for yourself. So as we uh, come to consider these things, uh, let's pray and ask God to help us. Father God, we uh, commit this time now to you. Uh, we thank you for your words. Uh, we thank you for this portion of scripture that we're going to be uh, considering together. And we pray that as we Listen to what you have to say, that we would have ears to hear what you have to say, and that we might see something of you. We might get a fresh sense of who we are in Christ, and therefore what our earthly Christian life should look like. And so we ask and pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Now I realize um, I'm jumping in to Ephesians chapter 4. If you've read recently or ever read Ephesians 1 to 3, you might not need this context that I'm about to set, but I think it's helpful for all of us to be reminded at least of what Ephesians 1 to 3 deals with. Not because I just want to waste five minutes uh, giving you a bit of history, but actually we cannot seek to understand or even get anywhere near grasping what Paul is talking about in uh, chapters 4 through 6, unless we get some context from what he's dealing with in chapters 1 to 3. Paul, he's writing to this Ephesian church. Uh, we've already alluded to it at the beginning in, chapter, in verse 1. He describes himself as a prisoner. He's not physically with them, but he's writing this letter to them. And perhaps differently to some of his other letters, uh, he's not dealing in Ephesians with specific issues. He's not dealing with specific sin. He's not dealing with specific uh, people such as leadership or anything of, of those things. He's not dealing with any of those things. He is dealing with the church as a whole. He's dealing with those who belong to the body 
of Christ. And this book of Ephesians can be divided into two sections, as I've already kind of said. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, and then uh, chapters 4 to 6. And Paul uses chapters 1 to 3 to set the foundations of what he's about to deal with in chapters 4 to 6. And what he deals with in the first three chapters can be, I guess, summed up with the words, our our vertical relationship with God. Who are we in Christ? What does our vertical relationship with God look like? And that's what we need to grasp or at least get hold of before we start even dabbling in chapter 4. See, Paul begins by reminding the Ephesian church, and actually us too, what our position in Christ really is. Now, you might think, I don't need reminding. Well, I'm going to remind you anyway. Chapter 1, what has God done for us? Well, if you want to flick back, you can, but I'm just going to highlight some things that chapter 1 brings out. He has chosen us before the beginning of creation. If you're a Christian here this evening, do you know that? He has chosen you. As an individual, he has chosen you before the world was even created. He knows you personally. But not only that, he has adopted us as his children. He has given us an inheritance. Now, if those things don't stir up inside of you some kind of excitement, some kind of um, just great pleasure, then I think maybe you need to reread chapter 1. Because we have such a privileged position in Christ, that we have this relationship with God, that he has chosen us, he has adopted us, he's given us an inheritance. The focus is on God's sovereignty. In chapter 2, he speaks of what Christ has done in us. All of the undeserved grace that he has poured out into our lives. As sinful people as we were, whilst we were still in darkness, Jesus came and found us. In chapter 3, he speaks of what Christ has done between us. He has reconciled us to God. He has given us a new relationship with him. So Paul wants this Ephesians church to be reminded of who they are in Christ. The great blessing, the great privilege, the great honor that we, even though we do not deserve it, that we have been given. This evening, as we come to chapter 4, do we have those things in our mind? Do those things really weigh on our hearts? Do we really understand who we are in Christ? You know, when we become a Christian, it's not a once-in-a-lifetime happening. We don't just join and become a Christian and then that's it. There's great blessing, there's great joy in knowing that Creator God has chosen you. He's given you an inheritance. He's adopted you as his children. Do we get a sense of what that means individually and personally in our lives? Because it's into that context that we arrive at chapter 4. And how does Paul begin this second half of his book? 
Paul begins this second section of his book with some challenging words. This is my paraphrase. Therefore, in light of what we've just considered, the knowing and having your vertical relationship with God in view, what does he say in verse 1? You are to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. It's into that context of knowing who we are in Christ that Paul says, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. In other words, what Paul is saying, your vertical relationship with God is primary. Who you are in Christ is primary. That's where your focus should be. Your relationship with him should be the thing that is most important in your life. Above everything else. And if your relationship with God isn't there, if it's messy, if it's confused, if it doesn't take the place that it should in your life, then we need to go back. Because we cannot begin thinking about chapters 4 through 6 unless we have our relationship with God, right? In, in a sense, we shouldn't be surprised if our relationships with one another don't work out the way that we think they should if our relationship with God is in a mess. So here in Ephesians 4, Paul is thinking about the horizontal relationships as he goes on in chapters 5 and 6, he thinks about the relationship within families, within our work, in our daily life. But here in chapter 4, he's talking and thinking about the body of Christ, the church. See, when we belong to the church, when we're part of the body of Christ, when we know who we are in Christ as individuals, it should affect the way we relate to one another. It should affect our attitude to church as we gather on a Sunday and as we join in the various things that church brings to us. So what does church mean to you? What's your attitude to church? What is your relationship with one another like? That's each other, that's leaders, that's pastors. Paul is talking to the church as a whole. And church, in some ways, it's a strange place, isn't it? Because nowhere would you ever conceive potentially bringing the people that come to the church or belong to the church. Nowhere would you ever perhaps conceive that those people would come together. And in some senses, that's a great excitement and that's a great joy that we can come together with people that perhaps we wouldn't otherwise be connected with. We're connected through Jesus. But the problem is, that element also brings with it some challenges, doesn't it? That actually we're going to be with people that perhaps we don't find it easy to get along with. That just frustrate us. Maybe some people just annoy you. And perhaps as you gather as a, a collective church, maybe things and decisions don't go the way you want them to. But that's why Paul addresses the church in this way. Whatever we think of church, whatever our attitude to church is, whatever our relationships look like within the church, 
we need to know a fundamental thing. And that is what the church is to Jesus. We can describe that in one word. To Jesus, the church is precious. In fact, so precious that Jesus gave his life for his church. And that is something of what Paul has been addressing in those early parts of Ephesians. And I wonder this morning, or this evening, what would you be willing to give your life for? Do you have anything in your life that is that precious? Because the reality is Jesus thought the church, you and I, were worth dying for. Now, it might be hard to look out on church, maybe the people that you see around you. It might be very hard to see why Jesus thinks the church is precious. With all the failings, with all the sinfulness, with all the the problems that go on, you think, why does Jesus think the church is so precious? Jesus thinks the church is precious. That's all we need to know. And what do you do with something that is so precious? Well, don't you seek to protect it? Don't you seek to try and do whatever you can to keep it the way it is? See, that's where we need to begin. If we can't grasp what Jesus thinks of the church, if we can't grasp how precious Jesus thinks the church is, then we will not understand what church should be to us. We will not understand how we can or how we should relate to one another. We will not understand how much it breaks his heart when he sees the church in problems, having disagreements, being disunited with one another. Now, I'm not going to bring everything out from Ephesians 4. Uh, There's lots in it. Uh, We don't have time uh, to go through it all. But I want to just bring out some, just two things that I think really stand out as two big themes, two attitudes about church. And that is, it's there on the title if you're using the NIV, Unity and Maturity. So the first thing I want to ask is, are you seeking unity? Because that's the first attitude, I think, uh, the, the church should be to us. Unity is the foundation of the church. The problem is that we have a very distorted view of what unity is. You know, often, as you think about that, maybe you, th- you have your own ideas of what unity means. Maybe you think it means always agreeing with one another. Maybe you think it means always liking one another, getting along with each other. But here's the first thing we need to know, that unity is not liking and agreeing with each other all of the time. Here's an interesting phrase. It is possible to disagree and still be united. I'm sure you've seen <clears throat> some of that uh, over the however many months and maybe years uh, that we've been keeping up with proceedings in the Houses of Parliament And perhaps even in more recent months, we've seen perhaps a sense of what unity means, but also perhaps what a sense of unity doesn't mean. Some are united on a common goal. This is what we want. Others want their own amendments. Others want their own way. 
Others want the prime minister to resign, which he has now. Others form their own party. If you're not going to listen to me, if you're not going to follow my way, then I'm just going to form my own party where I call the shots. You see, the thing is, we get frustrated when we see it in our world. We get frustrated when we can't see people who we think should be united, getting along, getting things done. We get frustrated. But isn't that so true of how the church can be at times? We can be completely disunited. We can be completely on the opposite side of what it means to be united. We might be united on a common goal. We might have the same overall purpose. We might be traveling towards the same direction, but do we want to add our own amendments? Do we want things to be done the way we want them to be done? Do we cause problems, arguments, to make a point when things don't go our way? Do we make life difficult? Do we say, well, actually, if this church isn't going to do what I want, if this church isn't going to be together with, with the way I think things should go, if that person's going to talk to me like that, then I'm just going to go somewhere else. Now, there might be times when it is necessary for that to happen. I'm speaking very broadly in that sense. But what I'm referring to here is are we seeking to break and damage unity by our own preferences, by our own desires, by our own attitudes and relationships with one another? Where is your unity grounded? You see, Paul in Ephesians 4 describes to us the fuel, as it were, for our unity, the grounding for our unity. Take a look at verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to uh, one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The seven ones. Why is unity important? Because there is one body. There is one spirit. Present tense. We were called, past tense, to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. They belong together. They are not exclusive of one another. They belong together. And if you remove any of those seven things, if you push any of those seven things to one side then unity is damaged. Unity is extinguished. You see, we need to understand one thing this evening, that we are not unified around our decisions. There might be times when that's good and helpful and appropriate, but we are not unified around our decisions. We are not unified around our preferences. That is not our grounding for unity. And I'm so thankful for that because I don't think we'd ever, ever, ever achieve true unity based on those things. Paul says this is where your unity is found. This is where it is grounded, that the church is one body. We might have separate local churches. We might have separate groups that make decisions in the church, but we are one body. We are part of that one body. There is one spirit that unites us all. And Christ is the head of every church. 
You see, you and I have been called, if we're Christians here this evening, we've been called. When you first became a follower of Christ, we have been called. To what were we called? Well, we were called to one hope. We all have that same forward-looking hope. To a certain future. We are all united around the same faith. Because we have one God and we have one Father. The same God. It's one family. So as we're seeking unity as the, found, uh, as the foundation of church, it is possible to disagree. It is possible to have our own views and thoughts. And we can still be united. Why? Because those things are not what unifies. And I think a big lesson we need to learn, and I need to learn, is that we should not let God's purposes be affected by our disunity. You know, a spirit-filled, Christ-centered church is not a perfect church. There will be problems, but it is a church that is seeking and striving for unity. Unity that is grounded in verse 4. So with those foundations set, the fuel of those seven key aspects, it leads us to verse 2. If our unity is centered in verse 4, how do we work that out? We'll look at verse 2. We are to be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Are these things easy to do as we seek unity? Of course not. These things are probably some of the most difficult things that we can do at times. Being patient, being gentle, being humble. Why are these things difficult? Well, actually, Paul expects them to be difficult because in verse 3 he says, make every effort. It it gives the impression that it's not just going to be something that we can just do. We're going to really have to strive at it. We're going to have to work hard, not in our own strength, but in Christ's strength to keep that unity. Our unity can only be and should only be found in Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So are we seeking after and striving for that unity? A unity that is grounded in verse 4 and is worked out in verse 2. You see, if we're serious about seeking unity, then our attitude and response should be one of humility. It should be one of gentleness, of patience. And perhaps one of the toughest, in my opinion at least, bearing with one another in love. I don't know what you think when you hear those words. See, the reality is, the church is full of unbearable people. Let's just be honest. It's full of unbearable people. I'm one of those unbearable people, and so are you. And as we make every effort to keep unity, what is Paul saying? He's saying, actually, that you and I are going to have to do a lot of bearing with unbearable people. And that can only be done in love, can't it? As we seek to bear with unbearable people, we do it all in love. Now, there are many ways in which we can destroy and damage unity. In in some senses, there's too many to go into, but I want to highlight just one. That's gossip. 
someone once defined to me. Gossip is any conversation you have with someone about something who cannot help solve the issue you are talking about. Gossip is any conversation you have with someone about something who cannot help solve the issue you are discussing. You see, gossip is, among many other things, a very damaging thing. And the only aim of gossip is to destroy unity. It's to bring about conflict. I heard a true story. It was a few years ago. Uh, it was by a pastor who was speaking at a conference on this very thing. And he, he recalls a time when he brought to a church meeting uh, a very important and significant decision. Uh, it was a decision that he and the elders had uh, thought through prayerfully, potentially changing the direction of the church in a way that they all felt was right before God. And as he presented his suggestion and their decision and their thoughts, he invited comment and feedback from the membership to surprise, surprise, potentially, a sea of silence. And he was discouraged by that lack of discussion. He moved on to the next item on the agenda. And at the end of the meeting, as he left the church to go home, he noticed and overheard small groups of people talking about the decision that was raised. You see, we cannot truly keep unity when we act in a way like that, when we form small subcommittee groups to discuss what's going on, when we form small subcommittee groups just to run down someone or a decision. So perhaps a question to ask ourselves as we're thinking about unity is, are the people that I talk to about issues or problems and concerns in the church, are they people that can actually help bring about a resolution? If they're not, it's probably gossip. See, unity is not dictated, it's taught and it's modelled by us all. Unity does not mean that we have to like each other, it means that we bear with one another in love. Unity is not about agreeing all the time, it's about working together for God's purposes. And unity is damaged and destroyed when we're not joined together, when we look inward rather than outward. So our first attitude to church should be a desire to seek unity that's grounded in verse 4 and worked out in verse 2, which leads us to our second attitude and more briefly Are you growing in maturity? It's easy, isn't it, to think about the word growth and to be discouraged if we don't see growth in the church to which we belong. It's easy to look outward and say, well, we're not doing enough to grow the church. Our services are not suitable to invite people to. Uh, We're not going out into our community enough to reach those people and bring them in. And all those things might be true. But that's not what Ephesians 4 is talking about when it talks about growing in maturity. Ephesians 4 talks about a unity which leads to a growing maturity amongst those who belong. Unity brings maturity. And that's why we began at unity. But it leads to maturity. Maturity is important to God. It's important enough that verse 11 tells us that Christ who is the head of the church, gave us gifts. Four offices, or depending on your uh, reading of the text, it could be three. 
apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teacher. You know, the first two are not to be confused with those first century prophets and apostles uh, in their authority, or even in the case of like the prophets, their, their forward-looking, uh, predictive nature of their ministry. But Jesus establishes these offices of church leadership. We, we do not appoint and create those positions. Jesus has already created them. He is the head of the church. But keep in mind, Paul still isn't talking to those who hold those offices. Paul is still talking to the church. And those who are appointed are given as gifts to the church. To preach the gospel, to share Jesus, and to shepherd the flock. I wonder this, this evening, do you think of those who are in leadership as gifts to the church? Those who serve as elders and pastors, do you consider them as gifts to the church? See, this is the reason why Paul brings these offices into the picture. And I think some of that answer lies in verse 12. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. See, because the church is precious to Jesus, it should be protected. And therefore, Christ appoints pastors, elders, leaders to equip the church. And he does so in two ways. They're there in the text. For works of service and to build up, strengthen, and grow the church in godly maturity. See, leaders have the responsibility to equip the church, but it is the church who is active in serving. It's not just that we sit back and say, well, they can do all the work and I'll just sit here and receive. The church is active in serving, but leaders have the responsibility to equip. Do you see that? Whatever church you belong to, the leaders are given as gifts to the church to equip you, to build you up, and to help you grow. Do you pray for those in leadership? It's a big responsibility. And it's not a responsibility for those leaders who take it uh, to, to be taken lightly. Do you pray for those who God has given to the church? Are you growing in maturity? Do you willingly serve one another and the church together? Are you being built up in this kind of maturity? See, Jesus modeled that perfectly. You know, he came not to be served, but to serve. Wonder, are we doing our part? Is the church growing in maturity? What does that kind of maturity look like? How do we measure that kind of maturity? Well, we need to look at the direction of our maturity. Look at verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's why we had to begin in Ephesians 1 through 3. Because unless we understand who we are in Christ, how are we going to be able to understand and grow in this kind of maturity? Where is our maturity, our maturity leading to? Well, it's leading to that one hope that we've already considered in verse 4. Until we reach completeness, that final unity in the faith... That is where our maturity is leading. And our direction of maturity should not be independent of Jesus, but it should be into him. 
Are we seeking a maturity and growing in a maturity that is leading us to the promised completion of it, the fullness of Christ? See, the result and application of a church that is Christ-centered with Christ at its foundation is a church that is seeking and striving for unity. And it's growing in maturity, looking ahead to the day when the work will be complete. When we reach that final maturity and unity in the faith. But what does a spirit-filled, Christ-centered church look like? Look at verses 14 to 16. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as every part does its work. You see, that kind of maturity means that we will no longer be infants. Paul describes this image of being tossed around uh, by waves and blown around by the winds of various teaching. I think there's two things to observe here, that movement doesn't necessarily mean that you're growing. You can be moving, but actually you're just being thrown around by the waves and the winds of that which we are faced with. God wants us to grow up. He doesn't want us to be thrown around. He wants us to be grounded firmly in solid foundations. And secondly, there is a sense of great danger. Uh, I don't know if you've, you probably not watched this. It's, I tend to watch rubbish things on TV. But I was watching this program. Uh, it was following some of the, um, uh, the lifeboats around the, the shores of the UK. Uh, and on one occasion, it showed this person that had obviously gone out canoeing, uh, kayaking, and uh, she'd fallen off into the, into the waves, into the water. Uh, she couldn't get back in. And as the, the current got stronger, as the waves got stronger, as the wind uh, increased, she was thrown from one ripple, one wave to the next. And it was fine for a while. She could stay afloat. She could swim. But in the end, she started to grow weary. She started to grow tired. The sea, the sea started to get, a, get the better of her. And if she was left, she would have drowned. She needed to be rescued from being thrown around by the wind and the waves. And Jesus appoints leaders to help in that rescue, to prevent, to prevent people from being thrown around by various teachings, false doctrines, deceitfulness. And as you grow in maturity, we can avoid the potholes. You can avoid the mines in the minefield more effectively because you are no longer infants. You are growing up in a maturity that is grounded and rooted in Jesus Christ. So a spirit-filled, Christ-centered church is a church that loves God and loves others. It's marked by seeking after unity, making every effort to keep the unity but it's growing in maturity, becoming more like Jesus as we grow. And notice at the very end of verse 16, how do you know if that describes the church? 
From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. See, this type of church builds itself up in love. It builds itself up. It gives the impression it's kind of, if I can say it in this way, an automatic thing. Those churches, and as you, as individuals of that church, if you are striving for unity the kind of unity that's described here in Ephesians 4, if you are growing in a maturity that's described in Ephesians 4, if you are bearing with one another in love, if you are working it all out in those ways that we saw in verse 2, this type of church builds itself up in love. So what's your attitude to church? Are you seeking and making every effort to keep that unity? Is this church building itself up in love? Because we're all doing our part to keep the unity and to grow. Do we love God? Our vertical relationship with God, is that, where is that? What, what importance does that play in our life? And as a result, what does our horizontal relationship look like? Is the direction of our maturity looking to and heading to Jesus as we grow to become more like him. As we wait for that work to be completed. See, that's what church should be to us. Because to Jesus, the church is precious. Are you looking forward to that day when in the words of Paul, that he who began a good work in me will carry it on until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. The body of Christ, the church, will be finally and fully united to him who is the head, Jesus. And you will reach that final maturity. But until then, Paul says, we need to make every effort to strive for unity, and to grow in maturity. Can I leave you with these words? As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Let's bow together in prayer as we close. And dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for each one of us. Father, we thank you that as those who belong to you, those who know Jesus as their Savior, that you did indeed choose us before the creation of the world, that you have adopted us as your children that you have given us an inheritance that will never pass away. And that in Jesus, we have a new relationship with you. And we do indeed thank you. Thank you is not even a strong enough word for Jesus and all that he accomplished on the cross. And we thank you that you do indeed love each one of us 
as individuals. Father, we thank you that we have the great joy and privilege of belonging to the body of Christ. We have the great privilege of belonging to the church. And we thank you for this church. We thank you for those who belong here. We thank you for the the relationships that, that each one has with another. But Father, we pray for this church and for all the churches around, around the world. We pray that it would be Christ-centered churches. They would be spirit-filled churches. They would be churches where the church builds itself up in love because people are striving for a unity that is not perhaps normal to us but they're striving for unity and they're growing in maturity. Father, we pray that you would help us to bear with one another. It's difficult sometimes. We all have our own preferences and and thoughts and we pray that whatever lies ahead for this church and for every other church, that you would keep us together that you would help us to keep that unity through the Spirit and the bond of peace. Father, we thank you that you do choose to use your people to spread your name, your gospel, to the communities to which we belong. But Father, we cannot do that unless we are grounded in you, unless we are united in Christ. So Father, we pray that you would indeed help each one of us to come before you and to work our relationship before you, uh, out with you. And then you would help us and strengthen us to relate to one another in a way that honors you and helps help us to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. So we commit all these things into your name and into your hands. And we ask all these things for your glory. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand together and sing that uh, great old hymn.